Hey, when I was a youth pastor back in Indiana, I uh, took a youth group to clean up a house one day uh, and uh, as a service project. Didn't know the woman, but um, learned that she was housebound and uh, never made it out of the house. And apparently her animals didn't either because inside the house it was filled with dog doo-doo and the smell of urine was just overwhelming. And even, it even made the, the teenagers gag. It was that bad. And so we pulled up all the carpet. But this place would not have been my first choice to hold a youth group meeting or a prayer meeting or a Bible study. Unless, of course, it was cleaned first. Well, Jesus cleaned a house as well, but he cleaned it from something far worse than dog doo-doo. And we're going to look at um, Mark chapter 11, where Jesus cleansed the temple and what it means for us as the temple of God today. Mark 11, <clears throat> and they, starting in verse 15. And so they came to Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches or seats of those who sold pigeons or doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, no merchandise. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished. They were amazed at his teaching. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding a donkey. We'll look at this next week on Palm Sunday as we celebrate baptisms. But he came not riding on a big horse, a big steed, like a military war hero. He came on a gentle and lowly donkey, indicating that Jesus was a gentle uh, Savior, a gentle Messiah. He, he uh, came as the Prince of Peace. And so that's why it's so surprising that we're told immediately afterwards as he walked into the temple, he started driving out the sellers. And this word for drive out is a very strong word in the Greek. It, it, it indicates uh, driving out, casting out a demon. It's that strong. And it looks very violent at times. So as we read this story, and as you've read it in the past, does it give us permission to be semi-violent as Christians, when we, when we see injustice happening, uh, can we storm the Capitol or the, or the uh, courthouse downtown or the abortion clinic or whatever? Can we be kind of violent and dramatic like this when we detect corruption? Why was Jesus so dramatic? Did his anger convey a lack of love or passion? Well, he was Jesus and we're not, but sometimes if we're passionate about something, it means we love. It's not a lack of love. For example, if you come upon an act of injustice on the streets, like if you see a hit and run or, or someone getting mugged downtown at night and someone's purse stolen, or if you see a little kid getting bullied by older kids or whatever, then the loving thing to do would be to intervene. Lynn and I remember a time when Micah intervened when he was in like in 10th grade and a friend of 
his came and told us, did you hear what Micah did today? I said, no, what did he do? Well, he got in between a, kind of a nerdy kid who was getting bullied by some other kids, and he just got in between, and, he, and it, be, it became a tense situation. Uh, but that was a loving thing, to intervene rather than turn away. I don't see that. Ooh, I'm not going to get involved there. But why did Jesus have to become so angry and passionate, so much so that he overturned the tables and he and swiped the money off the tables? And, you know, why did he have to be so dramatic? After all, they're just, they're just selling animals in the temple. What's the difference does that make? Oh, and other people were carrying merchandise through the temple. That kind of sounds over the top, you know? Verse 16, it says, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. What did Jesus do? Like, start swiping at people carrying things? Well, the outer temple court was a massive open area, like three football fields in what length and width. It became a convenient thoroughfare then for someone to walk through one part of the city of Jerusalem to the other by taking a shortcut through the temple courts rather than go all the way around the walls, which would be inconvenient. And so there would be shoppers and there would be laborers, workers, travelers who would take this shortcut through the temple courts rather than walk around the entire structure. Sort of like when I was in middle school, I cut through someone's backyard and I cut through a business parking lot and I cut down like one and a half blocks to my foot, uh, my walk to middle school that day or throughout the year until the one day when either the homeowner or the business owner put up a fence, therefore obstructing my shortcut. And so my, my father went into the business and started overturning the tables. No, he didn't do that. I mean, he wouldn't do that. Why would he do that? It just meant that I had to walk an exit block and a half to middle school, which made the rest of the year miserable for me. Well, here's the key verse explaining the reason Jesus became so passionate with righteous anger. In verse 17, and he taught them saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers for all the nations. That's key. The temple was a place where God obviously dwelled. It was a primary place where people come to meet with God in prayer, to commune with God, to connect with God, to draw near to God, to hear him, to abide in his presence, and to worship the living God. The, section, the temple would be sectioned off in this way. The outer section, the big open area, would be only for the Gentiles. And then you move closer to the, the temple building, which contained the Ark of the Covenant. It was the, Jewish, the court of Jewish women, only for Jewish women. And then you move a little closer, and as the Jewish men could go there, a little closer than it was the court of only the priests. And then only certain priests could go inside the temple building. And then only one time a year could one priest go behind the curtain to offer sacrifice at the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement. So the closer you got to the Ark of the Covenant where, where God resided, the holier it became in a sense. Or at least it was so thought. But the Gentiles could move no closer than the court of Gentiles. Sort of like when I went to Boston Gardens to watch the Celtics one day when I was traveling. I felt so 
privilege to be able to get a ticket, my friend and I, but, but I was literally in the last row cheap seats, and so much so, see those beams up there? You know, I, there's a metal beam that was in my way, obstructing my view to the court. I had to, like, do this the whole game, or go do this, because I was in the cheap seats, and, and, and I envied the people who were sitting behind the, the team, like the owner's kids, you know, the owners of the Celtics, the privileged, but I was just a guy in the cheap seats. Now, the Gentile courtyard also became so cluttered with buying and selling and all these tables and booths and the traffic and the activity and the distractions, and then it made communing with God next to impossible for the Gentiles. Sort of like Wall Street, yet filled with dozens of stalls of animals, of of goats and oxen and sheep and pigeons, and all the noise and all the stench amidst the scurry of Wall Street. Ding, 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 ding. Try have a Bible study in that setting or a prayer. One ancient historian reported that 225,000 lambs alone were sold during the Passover week. That's a whole lot of stench and a whole lot of bleeding noise. Jesus said, my house, my house, indicating a deity. He is God in the flesh. My house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. Now it was popular belief for the Jews that when the Messiah would come, the Messiah would cleanse the temple of all the Gentiles, of all the sin, of all the um, uh, impure things, all the foreigners. But instead, Jesus comes and he clears the temple for all the Gentiles. You know, when we cleanse a wound on our hand or arm or, or something, we, we want to cleanse it so that the infection won't grow. You know, we want, we want it to become healed, obviously, and restored. And so this is what Jesus was doing. His motive was to bring healing and restoration. Well, the Jews were called by God in Isaiah 51 to be a light to the Gentiles. That was their job description, to shine forth what it meant to be a God follower. This is what it means to represent God and to know God. But instead, the Jews became obstacles to the nations, to the Gentiles, hindering their communion with God. They became stumbling blocks. And so Jesus came in and cleansed the temple of that attitude. They were distracted. They were stumbling blocks. Secondly, Jesus cleansed the temple because of the great financial corruption that was taking place in the temple courts. Many worshipers would travel for miles and miles, especially those who were coming from the Roman world diaspora, who, who had been scattered earlier. They were coming, and they would have to carry their, their animals, you know, all that way, but it became inconvenient to do so, to carry or walk the animals at long distances. So, so the temple leaders said, hey, let's just employ people to sell animals that could be purchased for sacrifice. So initially it was for convenience. It was kind of a ministry to those who were coming long distances. But over time, this business evolved into a corrupt business of profiteering. Animals would be, be purchased in Jerusalem at the markets here and, or in the farmers, and then they would be taken in the temple courts, and then the, the price would be jacked up 10 times the amount for, of what they paid for it so that the temple... Uh, treasury could grow 
and, and so that the priest could become wealthier, etc. So there was a lot of corruption in that way. But once the animals came into the temple course, they reasoned, you know, now it's a holy animal, and so we have to increase the cost here. Sort of like those televangelists on late night TV where they hold up a piece of cloth and said, I've touched this and I've prayed over it and I've blessed it. And now you can send away for a low, low cost of, of a very generous donation and it can be yours to bring healing. Even the doves and pigeons were sold, that were sold to the poorest worshipers were jacked up in price for profit. So there's corruption. And then thirdly, there was exploitation. The money changers which would have been different people, the money changers, they would exchange the pagan Roman currency that would be coming in. And of course, the Roman currency had that pagan Caesar's image on it. And so it would be unacceptable in the temple courts for the temple tax and for whatever. And so they would, they would exchange the Roman currency for like Roman shekels, which would make it acceptable in the temple, in the holy temple. But again, the exchange rates they made a great profit in exchanging. I give you a dollar's worth of Roman coins, you get 50 cents worth of shekels. So again, exploitation. And then finally, the temple priest would have been entrusted by the law of God to take care of their fellow landowners who were going through hardships and needing to pay off their land so that they wouldn't lose their land to debt. But once again, these money changers would loan money to their you know, Jewish brothers and sisters, but then they would charge incredible interest rates, like those quickie loan places. If you, if you get backwards with those businesses, then you are in major trouble with high percentage rates. So Jesus cleared the temple, not just once, but twice. The first time in the Gospel of John, at the beginning of his ministry, and then the other three Gospels, they uh, share the story that we read today near the end of his ministry, as he's going into Jerusalem to, to proceed Holy Week. And after the second time, the Jewish authorities were pushed over the edge. They didn't change the first time. They went back to business as usual with all the exploitation and corruption. They just took the tables and they turned them upright again, and then they started. Three years later, they had enough with this Jesus character. And so we're told in verse 18 that the chief priests and scribes, they sought for a way to destroy Jesus, for they feared him. So this temple clearing was a demonstration of Jesus' passion. And it was so key that it's recorded in all four Gospels. Why? It shows us how passionate God is about being in relationship with his people. And when someone hinders that relationship, then he's equally as passionate. So today, uh, or Mark 9, we're told, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, those who believe in me, it would be better for them to cast a large, uh, for a large millstone hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Guess what? The temple of God no longer stands in Jerusalem. But we're told, you know where the temple of God is now? We're told in 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you, yourselves, are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. You is plural. We collectively are the temple of God. And yes, in other places, says our bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit as well. But we collectively are the temple of God. 
the church, the people of God. And we represent on earth now the purpose, our purpose is to help people come to know God, establish a relationship with the living God. But sometimes we do just the very opposite. We hinder people from coming. We place up obstacles or tables that hinder people from knowing Jesus, sometimes by our words, sometimes by our actions, sometimes by our attitudes, sometimes by our lack of love or apathy. We put up hindrances. And when we detect these obstacles, what might it look like for us to overturn tables so that others will benefit? And I'd like to conclude this last part of the sermon with, with three ways that I saw uh, Jesus and what it means to us to overturn tables, if you will. First, we need to look within. We need to look within. We need to have repentant hearts. Change first begins with us. As a new driver in Jamestown, New York, I was driving across Washington State Bridge, which is, which is a big bridge. At the end, there was an exit ramp. And, and this guy at night pulled up right behind me, sped up, and I was like, what is going on here? He's tailgating me, and he's waving, he's saying, hurry up, go faster, kid. And, and I got really ticked at him. So you know what I did? I slowed down. And I puttered across the bridge, and I was like, uh-huh, put my elbow up and take this. So finally, when we made it across the long bridge, maybe 30, 40 seconds later, I saw him peel off the exit, go under the bridge, and pull into the hospital parking lot, emergency entrance. And did I feel like a doofus? For some reason, he needed to get the emergency room. But because of my desire, my rights to drive as I want to drive, I completely ignored his needs and, uh, and my discernment was clouded over and I became critical and judgmental of this guy and uh, I didn't convey the love of Jesus. You see, repentance and righteous anger should start with us by looking at this temple. It begins with us. To whom was Jesus' righteous anger directed toward in this story? It was the people of God. And where, was it, where did it take place? In the holy temple of the people of God. First Peter tells us, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Second Chronicles, we're told, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and then I will heal their land. It begins with us. We must pray for and hold each other accountable to live as faithful ambassadors for Christ to the world. And note whom Jesus did not confront in the story for the messed up world. He did not confront the pagan Roman Empire. People wanted him to. People wanted him to unleash all his wrath against these evil leaders in Rome. But he refused to do so. In fact, Apostle Paul tells us later in Romans 13 and 1 Timothy, we're commanded to respect those in leadership, pray for those 
who are in leadership. And, he, and they're writing this when Nero was in power, who, who would eventually burn down Rome and blame it on the Christians and throw them in the lion's pen, you know? He said, pray for these leaders that it may go well with you. He said, respect those who God raised up. Earlier when someone tried to get Jesus all riled up against the government leaders, Jesus said, give me a coin. He said, whose picture's on this? Caesar. He said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give it back, let them do what they do. And then you give to the Lord what is the Lord's. Namely, you give him your life and your service. Does this mean we have to agree with everything that government's doing and when we pray for them? No, it doesn't at all. Does it mean we have to avoid politics? No, because God raises up many Christians to serve in political leadership positions. Does it mean we can't have an opinion? No, but what it does mean is we need to check our attitude and remember that our enemy is not people. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, but it's rulers and principalities and unseen spirits of this world. Our enemies are not the political leaders. Our enemies are not the Hollywood elite or even the, the uh, media moguls, news networks. Those are not the enemies that, are, that would be taking our country down. It's the spirit behind it. These enemies are the people Jesus died for. And God promises that there will come a future judgment, but he's very, very capable of handling that all by himself. He doesn't need our help. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside. So we need to first look inside. And then secondly, we need to look up then. Once we've done our repentance, then we need to look up in the power of prayer. Jesus said, my house is a house of prayer for all nations, or even on behalf of all nations. Seldom, does, seldom would anyone change as a result of our force and, and our coercion and our control. Just look at Facebook and all the arguments that transpire in Facebook. Read all the, you know, all the responses. People get angry and they get, and by the end of that encounter, or, or whatever you call it, then people are more angry and hateful toward each other. And they've dug their heels in deeper in their convictions. You know, Jesus may have overturned the tables with passion to send a message, but his life was marked with love, love for his enemy. And he was the Prince of Peace, you know. A few days later, Jesus ordered Peter to put down the sword. He said, Peter, Why'd you cut the guy's ear off? And so Jesus reached down and picked up the ear and stuck it back on the Roman soldier's head. And said, Peter, we're not to live like that. You know, if you live by the sword and violence and revenge, then you'll die in the same way. That's not my way, Peter. And we know that by Martin Luther King, a godly man who received his marching orders from his Savior. He led a successful movement in civil rights by peaceful marches and by non-retaliatory means and through prayer and through teaching God's word. And notice we don't celebrate Malcolm X Day, who was the counterpart of Martin Luther King, but he wanted to revert to violence. Martin Luther King's way was the way of Christ, 
and it was effective and powerful. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will forgive their sin and heal their land. We see this pattern of prayer throughout the early church which led to revival and revolution in the early church. Acts 1, they all joined together constantly in prayer. Acts 2, they devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 3, one day Peter and John were going to the temple for the time of prayer. Acts 4, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Acts 6, when we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Acts 11, I was in the city of Joppa praying. Acts 12, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Acts 13, so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed hands, hands on them and sent them off. Acts 16, once they were going to the place of prayer, and on and on. That's what made the church powerful and effective. William Borden from Borden Ice Cream and Borden Milk. Have you heard of him before? When he graduated high school, he graduated virtually as a millionaire inheriting his, you know, his inheritance from a family business. And, and Borden uh, was given the graduation gift to travel around the country before he, he enrolled at Yale University. And, and when he eventually... After traveling the world, he saw a lot of need in different countries, and, and God gave him a heart and passion for missions. So as a freshman at Yale University, he said, God, just give me one other freshman to fellowship with here. And so God did, and they agreed to pray together. They found a third. They agreed every morning before breakfast, we're going to pray together and study God's word for a short time. By the end of their freshman year, there were 150 freshmen who joined them. By the, end of, by the end of his senior year, 1,000 of the 1,300 Yale students were involved in Bible study and prayer, all because of one freshman kid. Can you imagine all the leaders that came out of Yale University because this one kid said, I'm going to pray and seek God's heart? That's how we change culture. Like William Borden, our primary call and responsibility as the temple of God is to share and to serve and to love others, reach others with the love and message of Christ. We need to look up. And then finally, we need to look out. We need to look out, love the lost. The Gentiles in the courtroom, well, they, they represented the, the lost and the, the outcasts and the neglected and the marginalized, the disregarded, etc., William Temple wrote, the church, or this temple of, of the Holy Spirit, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. Luke 19, Jesus said it this way, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In fact, the church is the only hope for our world. Not cleaning up the government, not cleaning up Hollywood, not cleaning up this or that, Give it to Caesar. The church is the only organism that will change the world. We are the salt and light of this world. Without salt, the preserver will go rancid. And we are to go out into the world as salt and light. But many churches, instead they look at the world and they oppose those who are worldly with disdain and disgust. Those people who entertain immoral thoughts and beliefs and pursuits and, oh, they're disgusting. And I say, well, yeah, 
That's because they're unredeemed. They're unregenerated. They're spiritually blind. And the lost have a knack of thinking like lost people. But we're called to go to the lost as lights amidst the darkness. We're called to overturn the tables that will hinder the lost from hearing the truth, the light of the truth. We're called to seek to remove the blinders, break down the barriers, dispel the stereotypes that unbelievers might have toward believers or church people. And and the ownership is on us to overturn those stereotypes by our actions and by our words and by our attitudes and by our love. That, that is what will win people over. We know that. William, another William, William Black, which happens to be my father, used to say, you change people six feet at a time. You never have to figure out who God wants you to love. You just love the person you trip over today, one encounter at a time. Although these unsaved Gentiles may at times feel like they're our enemies by their beliefs and by their actions and attitudes, these are the very people that Jesus five days later would hang on the cross for. And he would, he would say these words for, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the them be us as well because we were sinners too. Ephesians 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And you know, when missionaries go to other remote lands, sometimes they spend years and years there loving the people. They don't go into these unreached people groups and say, hey, what are you doing that for? That's witchcraft. They've got to get rid of those idols. And no, 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 no. They don't do that. That's not their strategy. Their strategy is get to know the people, to love them unconditionally, and over time, show them a different way of life. And sometimes it takes years for people to be won to Christ. I've read many stories where missionaries had to persevere. We are missionaries in our culture. God is calling us to love those who are in the darkness. We need to look out. So, how do we overturn tables? How do we clean house? The same question could be asked, how do we break down the barriers that are hindering people from knowing Christ? Uh, First, we need to look within. Judgment, repentance begins here, first, with that type of humble attitude. Secondly, we need to look up. That's the power of prayer. The power of life change is in our Savior, not in our manipulation and control and having to be right in our rights. And then thirdly, we need to look out. We need to have a heart for those who are lost, even who may appear to be our enemies at this point. We need to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us and continue to love them with the love of Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, speaking to us through this simple story of the cleansing of the temple. And uh, thank you, Lord, that um, we are now your temple and we represent you to the lost world. And I pray, God, that we will be, we'll, we'll cleanse, cleanse our lives, Lord. We'll have that humble, repentant attitude that we may be effective at pointing others to you. In Christ's name, amen.